This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers, or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and today we are breaking down the iconic video game publisher, Electronic Arts. EA's corporate history dates back to the 1980s, and the business has evolved with all of the industry shifts in the decades since. To break down EA, I am joined by the author of The Tenth Man Blog. We cover the role of a publisher in the video game ecosystem, the history and dynamics behind crown jewels like FIFA and Madden, and what the growth in mobile and new forms of monetization mean to a business like EA. Please enjoy this breakdown of EA. All right. I am excited to break down EA, Electronic Arts. I have a lot of personal experience with EA. When many people were coming of age, going out, socializing, meeting new friends, I was typically in my basement playing Madden or playing some other video game, not socializing, not making friends. But I must say, amidst all of that, I'm not sure that I actually understood exactly what EA's role was in the video game atmosphere. So maybe you could just help explain that right off the top. What does EA actually do as a publisher of video games? So I think you can probably just draw a line down the middle of this business. And on one side, you have game studios or developers. And on the other side, you have the publisher. And the game studios are the semi-autonomous units that are responsible for actually taking an idea and making it a reality. So that's where all the artists and software engineers sit. They'll craft a narrative, figure out the game mechanics, and they'll produce some finished product. And then the publisher is responsible for funding all of these various studios, sales and marketing, distribution, making sure these games get into the hands of consumers wherever they are. They'll deal with licenses and then... The publisher will leverage IP created by a studio to do other things. That could be as simple as saying, here's a console, some console IP that we've created. We can port that over to a different studio to make a mobile game. And it could be as exciting as taking a video game and adapting it for TV or film, like The Last of Us. And that's pretty rare. That doesn't happen often, but that would be the role of a publisher. And so I like to think about the publisher as a capital allocator first. They decide what projects to fund where the best IRRs will be. And then that capital allocator does some of the more mundane operational things. So I think that's a good way to describe it. That makes sense. And do these publishers have studios which sit inside them? Is there much vertical integration in the industry? Yeah, so today, most of the big publishers own the vast majority of studios that they work with. So in EA's case, I think they own a little more than 20 individual studios. And they have occasionally, in recent years, worked with indie studios, particularly in the console and PC market. Most studios are owned by publishers. Over time, they've just been gobbled up through acquisitions. So 
Microsoft, a big part of that business, which is built through M&A, Activision, M&A, Take-Two, some mix of M&A and organic and EA, M&A. So today, a lot of studios sit inside publishers, and that's true of EA as well. That makes a lot of sense. How big is EA today in terms of revenues? And if you can compare that to the overall industry, that's helpful too. So the total industry, we're talking video game content sales, is something like $180 billion a year. And the top 10 publishers are approaching about 50% market share. So it's pretty consolidated in a handful of large publishers. And if we ignore China, EA is number four or five in that list. They're really just behind Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo, and call it tied with Activision. So they're the largest independent ex-China publisher in the world. They're likely to generate a little more than $7 billion in net revenue this year. So that would translate to about 5% market share ex-China. But internally, their split is something like two-thirds console video games, 20% PC, 15% mobile. So their bread and butter is console, and it pretty much always has been. And in the console market, their market share is some low teens percentage. So they're a much bigger player there. In PC, it's mid-single digits. In mobile, it's nascent. It's 1%. They like to talk about this number of players in their community of 600 to 650 million, which isn't totally relevant. It's not like a monthly active user number, but I think that gives you a pretty good sense for their reach. 600 million people are playing some title that they've produced. So pretty impressive. But it's really just a handful of titles that generate most of their business. So you can think FIFA, Madden, Battlefield, Apex Legends. So there's a few big titles, and then there's a really deep bench of dozens of additional games. And stuff people would probably recognize if you grew up playing video games in the early 2000s, Need for Speed or The Sims or Medal of Honor. But it's, I would say, a few big franchises and then a long tail of other titles. And how does that compare to other publishers? Is that common to have that concentration? Yeah, particularly in the independent publisher space. So if you're Ubisoft or Activision or Take-Two or EA, for the most part, these publishers have a few big titles generating most of their revenue. So like in the Activision case, I think there's three titles... Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, and Candy Crush that are 80 or 90% of the total business. So that's very concentrated. That's maybe at one extreme. In EA's case, the top five titles are maybe 50 to 60% of total revenue. So I would say of all the independent publishers, they probably have the most diverse game lineup. So no one mistake can sink the ship. And that's not necessarily true of all the other publishers. And when you were making that comparison of EA is the largest independent publisher sitting behind Sony, Microsoft, Nintendo, obviously console is a big driver there. Are the console sales coming into that equation? I'm just curious if you just focused on their publishing businesses, are those publishing businesses larger than EA's overall business? Yeah, I believe those publishing businesses are bigger than EA's overall business. So that's just publishing. Interesting. If you layer in console sales, you'd add another EA and a half of Xbox sales. Yeah. (laughs) Super interesting. Let's go into the backstory a little bit. When was Electronic Arts founded? I think there's a pretty neat story here. And maybe you can share a little bit of that. Sure. So there's this guy, Trip Hawkins, who was an early employee at Apple, who quit to start EA in 1982. And at the time, like the industry, I would say hardly existed. Like we're talking very rudimentary machines. Trip had this idea that there was a lot of white space there and long runway. So he starts EA in 1982. And initially, they were just a publisher. So they weren't making any games in-house. They were 
working with third parties to develop and publish games. And that worked fine for a few years. And then it wasn't until 1986 that Trip said, hey, you know what? I think we can probably hire a couple developers. How hard could it be? So they come out with a game called Skate or Die, which I'm sure nobody's ever heard of. It doesn't exist today. I think did pretty well at the time. But that's not like the lasting legacy. I think the important thing that Trip worked on was the Madden, or at the time, what was called the John Madden football game. And I know Trip really wanted to build a football video game. And then he really wanted the endorsement of a big name in football. So they had a wish list. And they went to the first person on that wish list and they got turned down. They went to the second person and got turned down. Then they got to John Madden and he said, okay, you can use my name. I'll license it to you for the title of your video game. But the only way I'm going to do that is if you make this as real as possible. So initially, EA wanted to have seven players per side on the field because of compute limitations. The game was too slow otherwise. And John Madden said, no chance. You can't use my name if it's not 11. I think it took four years between having this idea, starting down the path, to getting Madden published. And John Madden, he was the coach of the Oakland Raiders for a period of time. He holds some NFL records. He provided Oakland Raider plays that EA then put into the game. So it was like a very beneficial relationship. But it took a long time. They eventually got this game out. It was pretty close to what you would call a simulation sports title. And since then... Madden now holds the title for longest annual consecutive releases of any video game in the industry. So I think Trip's legacy is getting this franchise off the ground, and it's, if not the second, maybe the third largest franchise at EA today, and that's largely attributable to him. So Trip steps down in 1991. He actually tries to make a competing console platform, like Sega. It doesn't go well, but he leaves. So Larry Probst takes over 1991 to 2007. I think the important thing that happened during that period, like a very long period, was that EA really started pursuing this exclusive licensing strategy for some of their sports content. These exclusive licenses and what they hold today are arguably the strongest part of their moat. So that all started under Larry, and then subsequent CEOs carried that torch forward. And then the other thing, near the end of Larry's tenure, he started getting EA to do more acquisitions. I would say the results were mixed And there was a few that happened prior to him stepping down. He stepped down as CEO in 2007. And his replacement, John Riccatello, who was the CEO from 2007 to 2013, he picked up that M&A baton, really ran with it. And so during the John era, EA spent more than 100% of operating cash flow on acquisitions. And I think in the aggregate, you would look back and say that was a series of bad capital allocation decisions. So... They're largely just acquiring studios. And none of the studios they acquired in that period are like front and center at EA today. A lot of the IP they acquired has just slowly died. During this time that EA received a reputation with an industry, as I quote, the evil empire where small studios go to die. This 2007 to 2013 period, I would call that like the EA dark ages. And it wasn't just M&A and the shuttering of studios. There was a bunch of other decisions that were made that did not work out well. So for example, we can get into digital distribution platforms later, but the PC market, if you want to sell games to consumers digitally, you sell through Steam. And Steam takes a 30%, or at the time took a 30% take rate. They decided, well, let's try to come up with our own DTC platform called Origin. We'll pull our content from Steam, try to save on that take rate. And the year after they did that, PC revenue fell something like 30%. 
and then was flat to down every year after that while the PC market was growing at mid-single digits. So another swing that worked out poorly. John also moved EA to the city-state model, so decentralized a lot of the core publishing functions. And that ultimately just led to a lot of redundancy and margin compression. And then they published a few games that were received pretty poorly. They experimented with new monetization approaches that infuriated some players. And all of this culminated with EA having a pretty bad reputation among consumers and players and within industry. And near the end of John's center, there was this company called The Consumerists, which was a subsidiary of Consumer Reports. Every year they held a poll for worst company in America. It's like a March Madness style bracket. So you, you face off against somebody, the winner moves on to the next bracket. And in the finals in 2012, it was EA and Bank of America. And EA won the title of worst company in America by a record number of votes. And then in 2013, it was the same thing. It was Bank of America and EA in the finals. EA won again. And this is just after the global financial crisis, right after peak Occupy Wall Street, and a video game company beat a bank. So I think that tells you all you need to know about this period of time in EA history. Then John steps down and Andrew Wilson takes over in 2013, and he's still the CEO today. And he reversed a lot of that stuff. He reversed the city-state model. So he consolidated publishing functions again in this one EA initiative. So it was all about getting scale economies and margins did improve in part for other reasons, but I think in part because of that. He reintroduced content to Steam and then obviously PC revenue started growing again. For the first seven or eight years that he was CEO, they basically halted all M&A. I think he looked at what had been happening, realized it didn't work, stopped it almost completely. They did one acquisition in 2017 of Respawn, which was pretty important and has worked out very well. But it otherwise stayed away from that M&A allure until just the last two years. But I think that was a positive step change. They leaned into the licensing strategy, not just with the core sports franchises, but shortly after he became CEO, they signed a 10-year agreement with Disney to make Star Wars games. That was a very important decision. But I think the most important thing that happened under Andrew, which actually started even before he was CEO, was the introduction of the Ultimate Teams game mode. So he was an executive producer at EA Sports, and I think he was the guy to greenlight Ultimate Teams in 2009. And that has been one of the biggest drivers of top-line growth for EA over the last decade. So I would call the Andrew Wilson era the turnaround era. And today, they're in a much, much stronger position. I think there's a generally more favorable view among people in industry and consumers and players than there used to be. If I look back over 40 years of history, I would credit a lot of EA's current success to just three things. It's the exclusive licensing strategy, ultimate teams, and the respawn acquisition. Incredibly rich history. There's a book... The Making of Prince of Persia, which dates back to the 80s and the early days of video game development. And it's this really awesome journal that the developer had kept himself that was later published. And it's an excellent snapshot into how different the industry was then, a lot happening on PC and how much it's changed since then. You tapped into one of the interesting early developments for them, which was Madden and his impact on that actual franchise, which is really interesting to hear about. You always hear about these licensing agreements, and I have no idea how much input George Foreman had with the George Foreman grill, but it sounds like John Madden had quite a bit of input with Madden football. Talk a little bit about the licensing, because I think having the NFL Association being able to use players' names, that is huge. What does that look like? And you mentioned it evolved over the years as well. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that. 
initially there was no license with the NFL or NFL Players Association. It was just John Madden. And then John Madden actually sold EA perpetual rights to use his name. So now forever it will be branded probably Madden football. So in the early 90s, EA went out and secured a non-exclusive license with the NFL and NFL Players Association to use real players and teams and stadiums in their game. And that's important because there's two types of sports content. There's simulation sports, non-simulation sports. Non-simulation sports is like three-on-three pickup basketball. Simulation sports is obviously very closely resembles real life. And so simulation sports is orders of magnitude more popular than non-simulation sports games. So getting the license to use player likeness in the game is very important. But it wasn't exclusive, and that was fine for about a decade after that license was signed. Madden was the dominant football franchise. And then in the early 2000s, Sega came out with a competing title and took share from Madden. Immediately in response to that, the same year that that happened, EA went out to the NFL and NFL's Player Association and signed a five-year exclusive license. And I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I had read a comment by somebody who was working at 2K at the time on a football game. And he said, when EA signed that deal, it was like a nuclear bomb going off in industry and it just killed all other projects. So nobody else can make simulation content for at least five years of that term. But that deal has now been extended and renewed multiple times and currently runs through 2026. So at a minimum, EA has contractually ensured that there can be no competition in this niche for 22 years. Pretty powerful place to be. And then as the industry grows and you're the only game in town, you reach this level of scale that lets you pay some ridiculous prices to continue to lock down that exclusive license. And so the last rumor has it that the last agreement with the NFL and the Players Association was worth $300 million a year. So come 2026, is it likely to be more than $300 million a year on renewal? Probably. And so a competing publisher or studio, if they wanted to steal that license, that's the floor. At a minimum, you're spending that much. But in addition to that, if you've not made a football game ever, the upfront development costs will be obviously much larger than EA. There's no brand. And you can't use Madden. like That's not associated with the license. So you're going to spend a whole bunch of money on marketing. And you layer in the platform fees. And next thing you know, just to break even, you need to be generating six, $700 million in sales. So I think the barriers to competition at this point, I don't want to say insurmountable, but pretty darn close. And what's interesting, though, the NFL Madden relationship is really two licensors, one licensee, even if nobody steals the license. There's a balance of power there that ensures that the NFL will get paid as the game scales. And the yeah. dynamic is different for FIFA. That I want to get into with Madden. I can remember distinctly when Sega Dreamcast came out, 9999. It was this ad campaign. The graphics were significantly better with 2K. It was the Randy Moss era. I can picture it in my mind. And then it did just disappear. Do you have any sense of what the economics look like at that time versus obviously you're talking about 300 million today? But was that a significant price they paid at the time to get that exclusive deal? I'm not sure. I've looked in the past for some of the historical terms, but the rumor mill was not the same. That yeah, I'm sure. 20, 30 years ago that it is today. But generally over time, when you look at EA's financial statements, and there's some guesswork required, but you can see that most likely licensing costs as a percentage of revenue have gone up. 
So I would say it's probably proportionally a greater share of sales today than it used to be. Just based on just the change in sales, it would have been very, very, very small fraction of $300 million. Excellent money spent at that time to grant that. And for context, that let's say 300 million compares to overall media rights to actually televise the game is 10 billion. And that's split across a bunch of broadcasters for the NFL. The NBA itself, they do 2.4 billion in media rights deals. So you're talking about, it's not an insignificant number to pay for these rights. And it's really interesting to see how that's evolved. Talking about the sales and proportion of sales that gets paid out for the licenses. Do you have any context for what Madden generates in revenue a year for EA? So there is a little bit of guesswork required. They don't report it, but I would guess you're looking at 10 to 13% of their overall sales, which is how much? Oh, so you're looking maybe at 700, 800 million in revenue. At a minimum, it's 300 plus the platform fee, plus development and marketing, plus a 20% operating margin or something like that. So you're getting into the well north of $500 million in sales. Yeah, they're making back their money, to say the least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, FIFA, I can already start to guess how that license may look different versus what you have for the NFL, which is one league in the US. So how has that license evolved over time? And how big is FIFA relative to Madden? So FIFA is likely in terms of revenue. And again, guesswork required, but I would say it's in the order of two to three times larger than Madden, which is not that surprising in the context of American football is a very unique to America and soccer is the world sport. There's like 3 billion fans. <laughs> Ignorant American on the other side of the microphone here. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a much bigger title. I mean, FIFA launched pretty shortly after Madden. I want to say only five or six years later. And it has also released an annual title every year for 30 years. And so initially, EA just got the license to use the FIFA brand name for the title of their game. And that's been a relationship that's lasted 30 years, but is coming to an end next year. That license effectively just gave them a brand, which was helpful at the beginning when you're making a new title, maybe not as valuable today. But I think more interesting is that over 30 years, EA has amalgamated over 300 licensing agreements with different teams and players associations all over the world. As we sit here in 2023, they've basically gobbled up rights to most of the content in soccer, which is pretty impressive. There was one competing title called Pro Evolution Soccer. And for a long time, Pro Evolution Soccer did have some exclusive licenses, but year after year, EA just snipped them out and paid a little more, whatever it was. So today, EA has most of the rights to exclusive content. They're effectively the only simulation soccer game in town. And the unique thing about this licensing dynamic is that it's not like all 300 of these licenses expire on Jan 1st, 2024, where a competing publisher can come in and, and bid above EA. So if a competing publisher or studio wants to make a simulation soccer game in any one year or two, maybe they can steal a few licenses. But this competing title, even if they stole those licenses would have some fraction of the contents of FIFA. And that begs the question, like, would anybody switch? Maybe some people. But again, it's this huge upfront cost. It's licenses, it's developments, whatever. It's a pretty big gamble. And if you're any of the licensors, if you're Premier League, it's a tough gamble to take. I think the Premier League deal was last rumored to be $100 million a year. So you know you're getting $100 million, and these licenses are part 
minimum guarantee part floating royalty. So if you're getting $100 million already through that combination, you will most likely for a new studio require $100 million guarantee. And so it just increases the fixed cost for a competitor. And so because of the staggered licensing dynamic, the massive numbers involved, again, they're at the scale that is likely unrivaled. I just think the moat is so strong that I would be shocked if in the next two decades there was any real competition for simulation soccer. So together, those two titles do how much of EA's revenue? Probably a little more than a third. Wow. Impressive. So I think the licensing strategy has been pretty important to like all the sports franchises, but that's really being augmented by the introduction of the ultimate team game mode. So I think it's a combination of things has led to this dominance. And so with ultimate teams, it's a mode in the sports titles where you can build your own team and then compete online with other players, either by yourself or with a team of friends. And it's pretty intricate. So there's a transfer marketplace. There are chemistry scores between players. So there's a lot of mechanisms that make it really fun to build and compete. And it was initially just sold as an add-on to the core FIFA franchise, since just being included as a free component of the game if you buy the title and rolled out to all the other sports. And even though it's free, they monetize by selling player packs. And so to build your team, you have to open these player packs. You can buy them with a virtual currency. And the virtual currency, you can either buy with real-world money or you can earn through just gameplay. And even though only 10% of packs are opened with real-world money, that's enough to make this very financially successful. And so rough numbers like EA had net bookings of about $4 billion the year that Ultimate Teams was launched. That was 2009. And today they're at $7 billion. So $3 billion of top-line growth for Ultimate Teams was $2 billion of that. So they're responsible for two-thirds of top-line growth over a little more than a decade. It's a very different story without Ultimate Teams. And what I find interesting is that the only other competing soccer title that had some licenses back in 2009, Pro Evolution Soccer, and in that year, FIFA sold something like 9 million units, console units for FIFA. Pro Evolution Soccer was about seven, so FIFA was bigger, but they were like competing in the same ballpark. And today, FIFA's selling 20x Pro Evolution Soccer. So it's probably the combination of ultimate teams and exclusive licensing that led to this dominance in their most important franchise, but I think it's been the case for other sports. And what's interesting about ultimate teams is I think there's a social element and like network effects that once that ball starts rolling, makes it really hard to compete with. At a micro level, EA talks about these little atomic units of four to six people that play one to two hours a day together in some of these games, like FIFA Ultimate Teams. But at a macro level, like as you get more players into the fold, matchmaking liquidity improves, liquidity in the cross-platform transfer marketplace improves, and that's how you trade and players and build your team. There are more tournaments, and then a lot more content gets produced that gets consumed outside of the game, like on Twitch or YouTube. A little bit like professional real-world sports. If you think basketball, you think NBA, hockey, NHL, football, whatever. So I think EA is building something very similar with leagues and tournaments. So they have an EMLS, an E-Champions League. And a lot of these leagues are pretty new, but the tournaments are still getting 100,000 plus viewers per game. So I think that's a very important part of the sports franchise story. Yeah, I want to get into yeah a lot of the revenue dynamics. If you just step back and look at EA's exposure to console, PC versus mobile. What does that look like today? 
Yeah, so console is about two thirds of the total business. PCs, twenty percent. Mobile is fifteen. So console is the bread and butter. I assume that's different versus the industry. Yeah, so the industry splits. It's changed a lot over time, but today mobile is about fifty percent of total industry revenue. I don't know the exact split, but we're talking maybe 25, 25. I know that's wrong by a small margin, but the rest is split between PC and console. So mobile is the biggest part of the market today. And have they ever made a big push into mobile or is there a reason why they haven't? They have tried via M&A multiple times. They tried, I think, under John Rigatello. Nothing really came of it. Most recently, under Andrew Wilson, they acquired two mobile studios. This is 2021. I think this is peak hype in mobile. And they paid almost $3.5 billion to buy these two mobile studios, which was something like 30 times trailing EBITDA. So like they paid a lot to get exposure in this market. And to make that math work, from an IRR perspective, you just need really high organic growth or margin expansion or something like that. And that hasn't played out. So I think they spent a lot of money trying to get a stronger foothold here. It's maybe too early to judge, but I would guess those are bad acquisitions. But I think that goes to show how hard it is to organically build a mobile business. It almost forced them to try M&A. If you look at the other big publishers, Take-Two bought Zynga. I think it was another big mobile game. Activision had no mobile business. But years ago, before I think peak mobile hype, they bought King for some measly like five times EBITDA. So a lot of the big legacy PC console publishers bought their way into mobile. What's different about the mobile market from what I think are pretty well understood console and PC markets? Unlike console and PC, where if you're making a AAA game, the lead time is potentially years, the budgets are in the 100 million plus range. You and I could go out and start a mobile title. We could make one, it wouldn't be very good, but we could make it with like $10,000. Really big mobile titles cost some fraction to develop. These titles are distributed digitally. That's not hard to do if you're like a little indie studio. And because the budgets aren't that big, the reliance on a publisher is not as high. So you find there's just more indie mobile studios. And if you come up with a great game and you make some revenue, you can like bootstrap your way to becoming a big mobile studio. And so the dependence on publishers in the mobile space is just lower, which is obviously one reason why They've had a hard time organically growing those businesses. Barriers entry are low. That makes sense. How much is replicable across the different mediums? So you were referencing some type of game engine software that they have within EA's walls, which they can use. I assume that breaks down once you transition over to a mobile platform. How much can you take from developing a game for an Xbox or a PlayStation, and then just copy the code over and apply it to the mobile side or even the PC side? I think you're often just starting from scratch. I don't think there's a lot of synergies to be had necessarily from a development perspective. Is that between console and PC as well? Or just is it the mobile extension, which really breaks down? I'm not actually sure. Most games that are cross-platform, like they're developed for PC and console simultaneously. So... I'd imagine that's much more homogenous than console mobile pairing. Can you talk a little bit about that game development and what that looks like in terms of costs? I think you made some reference to it there, but what are the general 
economics like for a new title? And let's assume that you have some visibility in terms of what revenue will be, which I know is the big question, but just some general economics around the cost to develop a game and then what the goal is in terms of margins for a run rate mature game. I find it helpful to start the other way and go backwards. So if you start at like $100 of gross revenue, the digital distribution platforms are clipping on average about 25%. And so just right out of the gates, if you have $100 in sales, you're left with $75. And then in EA's case, because they license so much IP, they obviously have to pay all these licensing fees. And that probably works out to a billion and a billion and a half dollars for them. But in this hypothetical example, that's an extra 15 to $20. And so on $100 of sales after the platform fee and licensing, somebody like EA is left with $55 to $60 of gross profit. And then the cost to develop and market a game, all of that is expensed. And typically, it's a little more than half gross profit dollars, spending billions of dollars a year doing this. And then you layer in a little bit of SGNA and on balance, these scaled franchises are generating something like $20 of EBITDA on that $100 of gross revenue. So call it 20% EBITDA margins or 25% EBITDA margins on net revenue, which is after the platform fee, which is what you'd see them report. So it's a very capital light business. Like there's no CapEx involved. Everything involved in making a game is expense. So it's relatively high margin, capital light. You'd expect for any scaled business franchise that has sort of enduring value, return on invest capital to be very good. And it generally has been. If you strip out the impact of M&A, return on invest capital at EA over the last decade, well north of 30%. So it's a very profitable business at scale. What's the expected lifespan of a game? I think 20 years ago, the titles were maybe shorter just in terms of how long they stayed atop the charts. What does that look like today? Has that changed much? Yeah, there's more, I don't know if you'd call them perpetual games, but a lot of this free-to-play stuff just persists for years and years and years. I think Fortnite, Apex Legends, Call of Duty Warzone. So there's a lot of large franchises. We haven't seen some of these franchises expire yet. World of Warcraft was created decades ago, still running FIFA decades ago, Call of Duty decades ago. So a lot of these big franchises, the franchise life could be 40, 50, 60 years. We haven't seen some of these end yet. Those are the franchises, but you have seen new titles come out. There are new Call of Duty titles. Oh, right. So there's annual release cadence. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot of games still do the annual release in sports, for sure. A lot of first-person shooters have an annual or pretty regular release. But certainly there's more perpetual games. There's not really a full game sale and all the monetization is in-game. And so the only reason you wouldn't have an annual release or a very frequent release is if you can generate more of your revenue from in-game sales and then just drop in new content to keep people in there. And you referenced it before, but can you give that breakdown of in-game sales versus upfront sales? That's just such a massive shift in terms of business model and monetization. So in 2010, something like 90% of total revenue was coming from physical full game sales, like you're buying a disc. And today, only 10% of revenue is physical full game sales. Maybe another 15% is digital full game sales. And then like a whopping three quarters is in-game sales. And that is an enormous shift over the course of basically just a decade. 
And so in-game sales, like it can be dropping new downloadable content like maps or campaigns that people can pay for to unlock. It's cosmetic items, it's loot boxes, it's all these other things. And that has become the driving force behind a lot of these games. And EA specifically, a lot of their monetization now comes from in-game sales. That's true of Apex Legends, it's true of most sports. So it's been a huge shift. What is the goal over the next five years? That's just such an insane shift in terms of monetization. Is that the goal just to continue to lean into more in-game monetization? I mean, do we get to a point where the upfront cost of the games is free? It just becomes an entirely free-to-play industry? I don't know if we'll ever get 99% in-game sales. There are... I think certain styles of games that don't lend themselves well to that, like stories. Whenever you're playing a single player campaign game where there's a very intricate narrative, like I don't think it lends itself well to in-game sales, but most titles that you play online with other people, I think, yeah, the majority of revenue will push that way over time. What does Madden cost now for console or PC? Oh, I haven't checked recently. Console games were $60 for the longest time. That's what I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, with the next-gen shift, I don't know if Madden specifically has changed, but a bunch of titles had increased that for the first time in like a decade by $10 or something. But it's still like relatively cheap. If you inflation adjust that, all this stuff has gotten cheaper over time. Yeah, I mean, it was $50 back in like 2000. So if it was still anywhere close to that, it's pretty crazy. When you do see a new generation of graphics driven by PCs or consoles... You would often hear about app developers and it was like, whoa, when we see an iOS change, all hands on deck, overnight work, just to make sure everything is working properly. How do the actual publishers coordinate that in terms of the step up developing games that work on these new systems? How much of an overhaul is it? And does that shift economics significantly in terms of having to keep up with the technology? Yeah, I think historically when there's been a change in console generation, development costs go up. That should be capitalized, honestly. They should capitalize it. It's a console generation last 10 years. It's a 10-year investment. But yeah, so it's generally more expensive, but that's really also the only time you can justify increasing the headline price on games. And to the extent that full game sales still exist in the future, that's offsetting factor, but certainly more expensive. And a lot of studios would just lease a game engine from somebody else or maybe they'll develop it themselves but it's just used within the studio but EA does this unique thing with the game engine where they try to have the same engine power as many of their games as possible so they're trying to get economies of scale on that front in theory if you can do that if you can have multiple studios using the same engine then when there's a console generation jump you're just updating one thing and cross your fingers and hope that it works for all of the different titles that you're making games for with that engine. EA may, like you can make an argument that they've navigated that a little easier than they might have otherwise. Can you talk about that engine a little bit? If I am a game developer and I don't sit under the EA umbrella, what does it cost me in terms of, do I create my own game engine? Can I outsource that in some way? You have two choices as a studio, whether you're indie or not, whatever, you have two choices. And that's to lease or to pay a royalty to a third party to use their engine, like an Unreal or a Unity, where you can build it in-house. Typically, building it in-house is very expensive. Cost estimates of 100 million plus. It's very expensive. 
So if you're an indie developer, you most likely are just renting an engine from somebody else. If you're a large publisher and you're making huge games, particularly if there's an annual release cadence, you'll just develop an engine in-house. So EA had this engine called Frostbite, and it was being used by the studio Dice to make Battlefield. And a little more than 10 years ago, they said, you know what, we should probably experiment with rolling this out to other games. So I think they started that rollout in 2010 or 2011 with this Frostbite engine. Eventually, it got picked up by the studios making FIFA, Madden, NHL, PGA, some Star Wars games, Mass Effect, Need for Speed. It's a long list. And it's difficult to know, to measure for sure, if there's been an improvement in margins, like if there has been scale economies. But you can see that R&D intensity has fallen. So I think it's a good argument to be made that the shift to moving multiple studios to the same engine was margin accretive. But it's also been a very challenging, more than 10-year journey. So the first game to use Frostbite was outside of Battlefield was Need for Speed. And they apparently had to spend an entire year repurposing this engine that was made for first-person shooters to do driving. The same thing happened if they're building a big open-world role-playing game. They had to repurpose the engine. Your publisher gave you two years to make a game, or three, and you spend a whole year just repurposing this engine. That can really hamper game quality. And I think we've seen many examples of that. Once you get past those growing pains and you build the second driving game or the second big open-world game, you should spend less time repurposing. And if you can make that 10-year commitment to get through it all, you get to the other side and you can end up with a more profitable business. And this is something that would be, again, not impossible, but very difficult to replicate anywhere else. Yeah, there's a certain irony that Need for Speed was the one that had to go through the grueling, long (laughs) pain of going through that switch. Do other publishers also have in-house engines that are used across different games? As far as I'm aware, like I've only looked at the big franchises, and for the most part, they're all using a dedicated in-studio engine. And even at EA, not every studio is using an engine like this. Respawn, which is outside of EA Sports, it's probably the most important studio. They specifically are not using Frostbite for Apex Legends. They're not using it for the Star Wars games they create. So yeah, it's not used everywhere. Some big franchises at the other publishers are just stuck with their own little thing or own big thing. It sounds like something that would make sense to investors as being this great unlock in terms of value, but it doesn't seem like they necessarily disclose how much value it's created. So is the value of Frostbite, is it clear or is it more in conceptual in nature? Like I said, it's hard to measure improvements in R&D intensity. You can see it maybe like a few percentage points improvement to margin, which is not immaterial, like that's hundreds of millions of dollars, but yeah, it is hard to measure. They have referenced it in calls in the past, but nobody's ever come out and said, hey, look at this thing, saving us $500 million a year. I think there's some indication there where if management has any chance to point to sizable savings or sizable gains, they usually don't miss that opportunity. But it's interesting. And it's one of those things where it would make all the sense in the world in terms of a synergy. And is it truly just software type application? Is that the right way to be thinking about it? It's like a toolbox. There's like a renderer and there's spatial and audio tools. So like if you were, say, for like a role-playing game, you had a scene. So you wrote in a character and the character is moving. You could like pause it and then change what they're going to say. You can drop in a bush. 
it's like a toolbox for somebody for anybody who's participating in making the game come to life super interesting an interesting development and differentiation for sure in terms of the in-game monetization you referenced loot boxes i know there's some risk around this development and how it's being treated and regulation can you touch a little bit on that and again reference just how big of a percentage of growth that's been for the business yeah so loot boxes if you don't know what they are it's just something you can purchase in a game that produces a random assortment of items or players you don't know what you're going to get basically all of ultimate teams is monetized with loot boxes player packs that you buy is a loot box you open it you don't know what you're going to get distribution of probability based on how rare something is all of ultimate teams which is more than 30 percent of the business different games of theirs have experimented with this like star wars whatever so it's i would say you're approaching 40 maybe more percent of total revenue is coming from loot boxes pretty large exposure to this unique monetization mechanism the concern would be that it constitutes gambling and if it constitutes gambling then it should be regulated under gambling law, which would obviously be very detrimental to EA. So this has been part of the regulatory conversation for maybe since 2018, really been part of the conversation. And since then, in the most extreme case, we've seen places like Belgium deem loot boxes illegal. And so today you can't play ultimate teams in Belgium. You just can't. And then moving down the spectrum, you have other places like the Netherlands where the Dutch Gaming Authority they just sued EA for using loot boxes in FIFA. But then EA appealed and won. And the appeals court said ultimate team packs were part of the larger game of skill. Being technical, it's not gambling. So they're really flirting with this line. But I think what's important is that there's no expectation for financial reward. And this was a stance that the UK took. So you can pay real world money to buy a player pack. But if you get a really rare player, you can't sell it back into the world for real currency. They've been very careful to, to make sure that's not the case. Because if it was, it almost certainly would be considered gambling. So in most countries, you know, after talking about this for five or six years, I think it's been established under case law that loot boxes aren't technically gambling. But there's the concern that it stokes gambling behavior in kids. And that's a totally fair concern. And so a lot of politicians are trying to get the industry to like self-regulate. Like, can you do stuff to protect children before we actually bother stepping in to take legislative action? So you can add better parental controls, not just at the console level, but like at the game level to make sure kids can't spend money on the stuff. You can adjust game ratings. You can be more transparent so you can show the probability of receiving certain things. There's all these steps you can take, but it's really difficult to know how this will shake out. My personal view is that this is a very low probability but extremely high consequence risk to their model. And they're working on addressing this, self-regulating, you'd say. They've introduced preview packs to FIFA Ultimate Teams, which before you open a pack like you would their traditional packs, but instead of having to pay for it up front, you pay for it after you see what's in there. Kind of like a weird dynamic to me. <laughs> kind of defeats the purpose. But unlike regular packs, that's clearly on side. It's not in the gray zone. And according to FIFA, it hasn't changed the cadence of monetization or engagement. I mean, there's still probably more they'll need to do, but I think the loot box regulation risk is the biggest risk facing the business today. The next question I was going to ask was on M&A. And you have these headlines with 
Microsoft and Activision. It's a very unique case going on. A lot of it being done publicly through the media. If you just looked at that in a vacuum, there's some obvious step which says, okay, if that deal happens, then Sony might have to come out and buy EA. But putting that aside, if Microsoft does acquire Activision, is that positive, negative in terms of how it would impact EA? So you're right. Sony would almost certainly look at somebody, whether it's EA or Take-Two. Like, There's not many options. That's definitely on the table. In the event that EA wasn't acquired, though, let's just say that didn't happen, would this Microsoft Activision thing be bad for EA? And I think it depends. Probably not, but it depends. So what would happen if those two console behemoths, Sony Microsoft, consolidated like the rest of the console industry? So they bought Take-Two and Ubisoft, whatever. Or EA is the last man standing outside of these two behemoths. And these two big companies, Sony and Microsoft, just bundle all of this content into their subscription services, like PlayStation Plus and Game Pass. Say they didn't change price a ton either. The relative value proposition of just signing up for a Game Pass or a a PlayStation Plus would improve dramatically over paying the $70 for a full game. So the concern would be big competitors effectively bundle, and that hurts EA's full game sales. But at the same time, the beautiful thing about their competitive position is that doesn't matter how many businesses Sony and Microsoft acquire, they're not going to have any sports content. Maybe if they acquire Take-Two, they'll have basketball, but they're not going to have any soccer or football or hockey content. So for players that want to play that stuff, you won't have a choice. So on balance, it's not positive if they don't get acquired, but I don't think it would be meaningfully negative. You referenced a bit there about the subscription models for gameplay. I think this exists in various different forms, but... How has it changed the economic model for EA in terms of various forms of Game Pass and other offerings that are out there? What do the economics look like for that? And does EA license any of its games through those type of offerings? So EA has their own very small subscription offering, and it's basically treated as an add-on to some of these other larger subscriptions. So you can pay the additional, I actually forget exactly what the number is, $30 a year. And then you get access to the EA catalog. This catalog, though, it largely includes dated games. The week that they release FIFA 23, they're not including FIFA 23 in the subscription bundle. So to the extent that they're not cannibalizing full game sales, which granted have already fallen as a percentage of total revenue anyway, they're really just unlocking value from the old catalog. So net-net, I think it's probably modestly positive if you can do that. And then generally, just over time, if you're not cannibalizing a full game sale because you're now largely monetizing with in-game sales, it actually would make a lot of sense to throw stuff into a subscription because it doesn't really matter to you. So why not get it into Game Pass? But it's currently not there today. If you look at this business and the next three years, what is the bull story or the optimistic case for owning this? Is it margin expansion? Is it just overall sales growth? What does top line growth look like for this industry right now? And where do you, from an investor standpoint, get excited when you see a name and have a bull thesis on it? Hard to pin it down any particular year, but generally over time, console PC markets grow at mid-single digits. That industry tailwind. Mobile was 2x that for a long time. Lower now. Mobile industry is having a bad year. But generally, I think you can expect as a publisher mid-single-digit organic growth. Not that sexy. But for EA in particular, I think there are four things 
over the medium term, you could call that three years, that I'm excited to see how they play out. And so the first is EA has ended their relationship, their partnership with FIFA. So they're rebranding the FIFA game to EA Sports FC. And all they're losing is the FIFA name. And FIFA, their only choice now is to find another partner to try to make a simulation soccer game to pay for the FIFA name. And so far, there's been no announcement. So I would be shocked if the new competitor did step in. But the implication of that is that EA is not spending $150 million a year on the FIFA license. And $150 million a year, that's more than 10% of free cash flow. So I would expect at least immediately, next year is the first EA Sports FC title. They'll probably spend all of that money, marketing, maybe on new content, whatever. You really have to make sure that the rebrand goes well. So first year, it's probably all gone, maybe, and then some. Second year, maybe do it again. By year three or four, if the rebrand has gone okay, and engagement's still there, and there's no competing FIFA title, I think it's very likely that that $150 million just flows through to the bottom line. You revert to business as usual, X that licensing fee. I think well, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. There was a recent development, the second thing, where, and I don't know if it's because Disney was so happy with Respawn and their Star Wars game, but Disney just signed an agreement with EA to make three new Marvel video games. I think there's a lot of potential there, just like there was with Star Wars. So that's exciting. I'm curious to see. So the studio that was making Star Wars and Battlefield was DICE, and they dropped the ball on both of those things. And then the Respawn studio that made Apex Legends, which is arguably one of their most important franchises, can absolutely hit. That studio and the guy in charge of that studio, Vince, they're now taking over for Battlefield and Star Wars. So there's a Star Wars game coming out literally in like four weeks that Respawn developed. And so I think there's a lot of potential there. So again, it's just organic stuff where I would say there's a lot more risk to the upside than not. And the final thing is, in the next three or four years, what happens with mobile? Can they do more organically? They had been working on an Apex Legends and Battlefield mobile title. They even released the Apex Legends title, but they've since pulled it. So what they're trying to do is create an experience that crosses platforms. So the difficult thing with mobile is it's so casual. It's hard to monetize, whatever. But if you could somehow tie the console Apex Legends game to mobile, so maybe you can just like watch your friends play. Maybe it's you can play some mini games that unlock content on console. So if you can do this stuff well, I actually think there is a lot of potential to leverage that console PC IP in mobile. And so I think three, four years would be enough time to see them do something. And they're clearly working on it. So that's the medium-term bull thesis is they execute on multiple franchises and there's a lot lined up. And if they don't, then it'll be sort of business as usual. Connecting the dots, getting a bridge from console PC to mobile feels like such a... It's a tough nut to crack. Yeah, it's absolutely hard. But if you can pull it off, it seems incredibly valuable. We close out these conversations with lessons that can be applied elsewhere. Are there any lessons from looking at EA, its history, its current state today that you think you can pull out and say, this is an interesting theme, which I'll think about when looking at other investments? So EA has experimented with a lot of different things over the last 20 years, many of which have failed, like that origin platform. But some of these experiments have defined most of their success. Two or three experiments have defined most of their success over 30 years. And the lesson to me is that if you have a profitable core business with big moats and you can afford to take lots of calculated risks, then you should, because one of those is bound to have an extreme right tail outcome. 
So that would be the takeaway for me. Like a venture model, but sitting within a game publisher. Yeah. And I guess in this case, that's the job of the capital allocators to take these risks. And that's the publisher for you. It's fitting that it was Don Valentine and Sequoia who funded EA at the very origins. And there's some similarities there and overlap in terms of the businesses. Well, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking about it. Lots of interesting stuff in this space. EA really stands out. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 